This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. I'm joined once again by Dr. Sebastian Hendricks, consultant in paediatric audiovestibular medicine at Great Ormond Street, for the second part of our episode on hearing impairment in children, which will focus on the assessment and management of hearing impairment. Again, this corresponds to several areas of the MRC-PCH curriculum, including the sections on respiratory medicine, ENT, as well as neurodevelopment and neurodisability. We hope you enjoy listening. So Dr Hendricks, thank you for joining me again. We finished last week's episode by talking a little bit about the ways in which infants and children might present with hearing impairment. So I wanted to move on today to talking a little bit about assessment. So when you're assessing a child presenting with a suspected hearing issue, what are the important components of the assessment that you do? The most important thing is to take a detailed history of the person. Holistically, looking at the development, family history, observation of and communication with children. And taking a good history often gives you a good idea already of what you might be facing before you actually test the child. We then use a variety of hearing tests to test the child quite comprehensively. This is usually more limited when children are seen in clinics held by other professionals such as ENT. The assessments are often not able to be that detailed. But particularly here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, we've got several tests that might only be available in a few other places in the country and really assess the children comprehensively. The different types of tests that we are using, they start off with, for example, the tympanometry, which is the middle ear function test. And this looks at how well the eardrum can move and with it can determine if there is some negative middle ear pressure, if there's fluid in the middle ear. We then have something called autoacoustic emissions. These are responses that come from the inner ear if it is stimulated in some way. We can use a little probe with a very sophisticated software that can send those certain sounds into the inner ear and then within milliseconds also record a response from the inner ear as these tiny sensory cells in the inner ear send those responses back. And that's a direct test of this inner ear function. This is now used in most of the normal newborn hearing screening processes as well. Not quite to the same extent as we can do in clinic. And we've got two different types of tests for this. We then have the audiometry, which is what most people think of a hearing test. It's where a child wears headphones or has some little earphones in their ears, or even does it in sound field where we just use loudspeakers in the room, which is usually a sound proofed room and present sounds and want to look for a response in the child. So this could be in the visual reinforcement audiometry, a trained response when the child looks to a side where we train them to look at when they hear a sound. 
we use something called conditioned player audiometry, which is where we condition the child to respond by listening actively out for a sound and performing a task when they hear a sound. And we do that across different frequencies in all of these tests and for each ear separately, unless the attention span or the level of development isn't quite there yet for the child. We then have the standard audiometry, which most most people are familiar with, where you put headphones on, you get a button to press, and every time you hear sound, you push that button, indicating that you heard the sound. We then have more assessments for some of those who need to be asleep or very relaxed, eyes closed, where we can report responses from the upper parts of the hearing pathway going up to brain level. And we can see if the hearing responses can travel along the hearing nerve very well. If there's a problem with the hearing nerve, the auditory brainstem response recording is the one that needs to be done in a very relaxed state and possibly asleep in young children. We need to give them actually a general anesthetic or sedation to be able to perform this test. And then we even have assessments of the cortex of the brain where we can look for responses for speech sounds and other sounds to detect if the sounds actually reach the cortex, the part of the brain for the thinking process and then a deeper analysis of the sounds. We have some other tests with that as well based on speech tests. So where we look at how a child can respond to speech sounds, how well they can hear it, how well they can understand and distinguish between the different sounds. And we then also have something called acoustic reflexes, where we look at this response from the lower parts of the brainstem, creating a muscle contraction in the middle ear in response to sounds. That reflex is there to protect our inner ears from louder sounds, but it's also a function of the hearing nerve, which is helpful if you want to distinguish a sensory so inner ear hearing loss from a hearing loss coming from the hearing nerve. Right. Okay. So it sounds like actually there's quite a lot of really quite advanced and quite complex tests that can be done to find the cause of a hearing impairment. So am I right in thinking that not all children would get all of these tests? It would be a question of having more standard audiometry. And then if you were struggling to find a cause, you might think about one of these more specialist tests. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So uh, you usually have a standard test, which in many clinics is the tympanometry and some degree of audiometry. And then the other tests are done in addition. Our assessment here at Great Ormond Street Hospital is quite comprehensive, where we will always use the autoacoustic emission tests, acoustic reflexes, tympanometry, audiometry. And then as needed, we can add even in the same clinic appointment, some further speech tests or so along. It's usually a question of time and also how long the child can concentrate on that because we want the child to be in the best position to respond to the sound. So it's not limited by the ability to concentrate, but really reflects their hearing. Yeah, sure. I can imagine that could be quite a challenge depending on the child as well. Are there any other investigations that are warranted in children with hearing impairment other than hearing tests? So, for example, potentially genetic testing based on what we were talking about earlier. Yes, absolutely right. So if you look at hearing as such, it's a symptom. It's not really gives you a diagnosis 
And so with this, you want to find out what's the reason for the hearing loss or that at least should be done in all cases, particularly in children. You often find it's not done in adults, but it should really be done. And therefore you need to look at other things. So you might want to look at the shape of the inner ear in children with permanent hearing losses. You can do the MRI for it and can look at the shape there. You can look at the adjoining structures. If there's any abnormality, you can see if the hearing nerve is normally formed, although we can't look into the function of the hearing nerve from an imaging point of view yet. Then there are blood investigations. If you look for systemic illnesses that can cause not only a problem for the hearing, but maybe other things and other problems in the body, the imaging for middle ear problems might include a CT of the middle ears, where you look at the middle ear bones where you think it's a temporary hearing loss, but it might be actually a permanent hearing loss due to abnormalities in the middle ears and the genetics, of course, usually that's done through blood tests as well. And sometimes you refer the children then onto other services as well. So if you have a hearing impairment, you, for example, want to make sure that their eyesight is good, because if you've got one sensory loss, that's already impaired, you want to make sure that at least the other sensory organs are working well, such as the eyes. So when their children learn, they can supplement that information that they might be missing from a hearing point of view with their eyes. And the other thing is that a lot of children around 20% actually not only have a hearing loss, but have some problem with their eyes as well. So when we screen children for hearing loss and then do a, a vision screening, it's about 20% of school age children who have actually something not quite right with their vision. So it's quite important to do that as well. If you've got problems with the middle ears, you might want to look at the kidneys. And we do that in terms of looking at a kidney ultrasound because there are conditions where the development of the middle ear and the kidney are both disturbed at the same time in the development of the unborn child. And that then helps us to find a diagnosis as well. So we always look at it based on the individual child in front of us, based on the history, what other contributing factors there might be, and um, then select the most appropriate tests to do. Although we've got national standards for this as well. So we have the different levels of etiological investigations that guide people what to do when, if they're not sure and simply want to fulfill the minimum criteria for each child. Right. Okay. So the national standards can help guide you if you're unsure. Moving on now to management of these children, and I mean, obviously it's difficult to generalize because management will differ according to the actual diagnosis, but is there an overview of how you manage or how you think about management of hearing impairment? Like with other pieces in medicine, it very much depends on what the child needs most. So what is most important to the child, you would focus on trying to restore their function if they have a loss of function as soon as possible, because for a child, even losing out in communication for four weeks can be a long, long time for them in their development can have significant impact. So you look at that and alongside might think of the investigations and depending on if you can do both things at the same time, or if you take a stepwise approach based on the young person. And their family, where they are in the hearing journey, can they take all the information in? Are they completely overwhelmed and in shock over it? 
So that will help you to guide it. However, if you suspect child is progressive and there is something that you might be able to treat, then you might focus on that in the first instance in order to avoid further progression of hearing loss. So it very much depends on what you think the reason for the hearing loss is, what the impact of the hearing loss is. And you do that in conjunction with a family and explain and then agree on the joint pathways you do in other parts of medicine. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, correcting hearing impairments. So the use of things like hearing aids, how often is that warranted? And could you just talk a little bit about hearing aids and when you might consider giving a child a hearing aid and the different types of hearing aids that are available? Again, it depends on the impact of the child in the mild category. Some children manage and want to manage without the hearing aid and you change in the first instance, their environment, try to make the environment around them more aware of the hearing loss. You enable the people or the environment, school, class, a room, a family home to change such that they can hear better in that environment by reducing or removing other sound sources that might interfere with it and make it more harder for them to hear. Any hearing losses that are moderate or greater usually are treated with hearing aids. There are far more types of hearing aids than you might think. The most common one is the one behind the ear because that's the one you see and that's still the most common and most helpful thing to do. The hearing aids that sit behind the ears amplify the sounds. They can suppress background noise and they're excellent, the ones that we have on the NHS, but all of them don't restore normal hearing. So if one thinks that person now hears normally, that's not the case. They still have to devote significant, greater mental capacity to be able to analyze and understand speech, to hear well in the different listening environments. And that applies to all hearing aids. These are the standard hearing aids. Then there are some hearing aids that are completely hidden in the ear. They usually can only be used by older children or adults, and they can't be easily exchanged as the ones behind the ear. So most children are fitted with hearing aids behind the ear. We then have the conduction hearing aids. These hearing aids sit behind the ear and stimulate through the bone, the inner ears directly. So to pass around the middle ear where the problem is, and if there's only a mild or no hearing loss in the inner ears, they can deliver the sound through the skull directly to the inner ears with excellent sound quality and give them really good hearing. And there's a variety of hearing aids that can be used for that purpose. Some of them are implantable. We then have implantable hearing aids that go into the middle ear and that's directly attached to the middle ear bones and stimulate the ear that way. So again, for conductive hearing losses, but also some mild sensory neuro hearing losses, these are quite a good choice. For severe to profound hearing losses where the inner ear is almost completely destroyed, cochlear implants are aiding solution. And these cochlear implants stimulate the hearing nerves directly. So the responses can travel through the hearing nerve up to the brain and can be used then. Those sounds qualities are very, very different. But from adults, we know that even with those aids, people can enjoy music. And we see a lot of children, if they're supported well in the education environment, they can actually achieve their full goals. So a severe to profound hearing loss doesn't have to hold you back. 
And we then have also hearing losses that, for example, if a hearing nerve is absent, that could only be rectified by placing something on the lower parts of the brain at the brainstem, and they're called brainstem implants. There are only two centers in the UK who can do that. And the sound quality is not that reflective of normal hearing. But again, some children manage relatively well with them, but it's a quite invasive procedure and you don't see most of that part. And so those are this short run through the different types of aids that you can use to improve someone's hearing. Obviously, if you have fluid in the middle ear, then placing ventilation tubes into the eardrum to drain the fluid into the outer ear is a quick fix for hearing loss for those kids. And that's what the National Institute for Clinical Excellence recommends, as well as the standard treatment for those children with fluid in the blue ear, if that persists for longer. Right. Okay. So grommets for those with yeah. middle ear effusions and then other hearing aids will be dependent on where exactly along the hearing pathway the issue is occurring as to the type of hearing aid that might be useful. Yeah. With this, what sounds like a big advance in kind of technology over recent years and the amount of things we can do and correct, what is the prognosis like for children with hearing impairment? Because you said that the hearing is never restored to fully normal levels, but that they can get by very well with these devices. Yeah, so our aim is that these children should be able to fulfill their potential that they are otherwise capable of. So hearing losses should therefore not hold a child back in their achievements, but we are not able to restore this inner ear function yet. There have been huge changes and some early studies are currently there to try some gene therapy, try some drugs to restore hearing. We know that in autoimmune hearing losses, we can restore some of the hearing with steroids. We know that in noise-induced hearing loss, some medications can protect the ears uh, from noise-induced hearing loss and can sometimes repair things afterwards or bring hearing back. But there is no other solution. So once you have a hearing loss that is permanent, it remains a permanent hearing loss. And at the moment, we can't say anything else to parents. We always hope that the next five years bring amazing improvements in this area as well. But at the moment, hearing aids are the only solution, but they should enable a child to hear actually quite well and allow them to progress through education and then in their jobs in the best possible ways that they could do otherwise. Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Finally, moving on to our standard quickfire questions that we ask to all our guests. Firstly, are there any classic exam questions that tend to pop up about hearing impairment? Well, I don't know, I must say at this stage. I haven't been part of the examination board. We try to vary them. So having a good basic understanding of it is possibly the safest option for it. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend to listeners who might want to find out more about some of the things we've talked about? Yeah, I think the National Deaf Children's Society has some excellent resources for professionals at various levels. And also then the guidance that they give to families is really excellent. It's relatively basic, but it should provide a person, even a medic, with good basic information that is detailed enough to understand the system and understand it to a good enough degree to answer even questions of the MRCPCH. 
Great. That sounds good. Finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? I think the first one would be that hearing loss is a symptom. So always ask yourself why a person might have it. And if it is the best possible explanation and the most accurate one to explain that symptom. The second one is if you come across a person with hearing difficulties, ask them if you can help them in any way to make it easier for them. If you work with them, for example, or if you find them in your clinic, what can help the communication and adapt your style to it? Follow good communication styles, such as make sure they can see your face clearly because lip reading in many people, although they're not aware, actually contributes to their understanding of speech. Making sure other sound sources are switched up at home, the television, the radio. And the third one would be if a child does not speak well, appears not to listen or behaves not in line with expectations, then think that this child might actually have a hearing problem and might need or benefit from a hearing assessment done by a pediatric audiologist or pediatric audiovestibular physician. And think beyond that. So that's possibly not a summary of the um, answers I've given today and then what we discussed, but I think these are quite important points. The detection, there is no shortcut to not needing to do a hearing test. If you suspect there's a hearing loss, the child needs a hearing test. It's relatively simple. Right. So just having that low threshold for kind of yeah. referral, if you have any concerns at all about yes. hearing. And normal hearing tests early on don't exclude a hearing loss later on. So a child that's passed the newborn hearing screening by school age, we know that the same number of children that were detected by the newborn hearing screening have a hearing loss at that stage on top. So there's a good reason to refer them again or make sure that they in fact have the school entry hearing screening. Right. Sure. So don't be falsely reassured by the fact yeah. that things used to be normal. Exactly. I think that's really important. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much for taking the time to talk to me today and for giving me a really excellent overview of hearing impairment in children. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.